that better? Good. This morning I get the pleasure of introducing Dr. Willis, but before we do, I do that and say a few things about him, I'd like to, we're walking over this morning and uh, talking about homecoming and how homecoming is getting to be a lost thing with our younger people, know what it means. I thought, well, what is my, what is my own definition of homecoming? The more I thought about it, it's kind of, homecoming's kind of like a family reunion, but there's more forever family there. You people don't know what a forever family means. There's more of them in a, in a, in a homecoming than there is in a family reunion. So this morning, if you think about homecoming, realize homecoming is when we get together as a family and bring our family to the church. Those that are out, gone and grown, and maybe the ones that are lost, they should be here and sharing on how we serve and love the Lord. So think about that this morning as we do all the different things of the service. And like I say, Dr. Willis, to give you an idea of how long it's been since he's left us, Philip was uh, born just right after he left. So that's just been, I guess, 30-some years. Right at 30 years. He's been gone, so time really flies. But Dr. Willis served us from uh, 1976 to 1979. He left, his, he left us to go be a director of missions at Concord, Annapolis area in uh, North Carolina in Cabarrus County. So and we're grateful to have him this morning, and we know that God has laid a, a message on his heart. So my prayer this morning for you is you'll listen attentively to what God is asking to tell us this morning because he's not really an outsider, but sometimes God can bring in a great message for us if we just listen. He doesn't know what's going on day to day here. So sometimes God can use people like that to tell us something special. So I just pray this morning that you'll listen attentively. Thank you. Dr. Willis, if you'll come join us. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for the privilege of being here today. They have got me all wired up. Am I hearing? Are you hearing okay? The, don't, don't smile about that. That's not to... You may be sorry before you're through here. And, uh, but anyway, it's good to be here and be back among friends. And as I look around this morning and see all of you that were a part of our lives and shared with me and the princes in our ministry among you, and then to hear the music and to listen to those who are a part of that. And as Sharon played the piano this morning, I, I thought to myself, why on earth did I ever leave here? These good people. And the leadership of this church that stayed up nights, it seemed to me, trying to figure out ways they could be better to us. How kind you were and are even still. So it's our joy to be back with you today and to share again. It has been a passing of the years, now 32 years since I left, and, and the, the years have fled by so quickly. And I see out there those of you that were junior boys and girls when we were here, now you're grandmothers, and time does do things, doesn't it? And we're glad that you're here today. The ladies, you have maintained your continued beauty over those years without any problem, evidently. How do you do that? 32 years, and you're still as lovely as you ever were. But men, 32 years have done a number on you. 
I don't know if there's anything that can help that. That would be a miracle. But we're glad you're here and a part of that. We are now into our 80s, believe it or not, and still doing the work of the Lord. I serve on a staff of a large active church in Concord where six full-time ministers on staff, and I'm one of the assistants to that part-time. I minister to seniors, and they keep me going and busy as we can be. Very, very active group, and uh, uh, working with seniors, incidentally, is like trying to herd cats. <laughs> they have a mind of their own, and they, uh, they do their own thing, but it's been a joy to, to do that as well. But to those of you that are younger than us who are older, uh, let, me, uh, let me give you some good advice, I think, that might be well. Uh, be sure and do your exercises every day. Eat right, of course, and take that Geritol every night, and then you can live long enough to be as old as we are and uh, hobble around and can't hear and can't half see either and all kind of aches and pains. Just take care of yourself. You can be there too someday. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we start out with no teeth. We end up with no teeth. And, we start out eating baby food, and we end up eating baby food. We start out with diapers and end up with diapers. So take care of yourself, and we will welcome you to the time of the old age. If you have your Bibles with you, we will invite you to turn with us to the uh, Scripture selected for us of the morning in Ephesians, Paul's magnificent letter to the church at Ephesus beginning with the second chapter of that division and the first verse. Let us stand together in honor to God's Word as we read it this morning. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience and among whom also we had our conversations in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved." and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Let us pray just a moment now. Lord, help us. Help us somehow to step behind the cross so you do not see us at all, but instead we see you. Let not my voice be heard so much as the voice of your Spirit speaking to hearts in that tender fashion of your continued love toward us. May someone here find you anew in that quickening experience that renews and makes over and renovates the heart and mind and sets us on a new course heavenward. Give us, we pray today, that openness of heart and mind that you come to us. Let us not leave as we came. Not at all, Lord. Not at all. 
but changed. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the favorite topics of, uh, of literature is that of tomorrows. And we sang even, even in this service, of course, that the song about uh, it is well. It is well. And uh, our work through the years and with the Foreign Mission Board and overseas as well, uh, with the Spanish-speaking people, they sing that same song, but they have two ways of putting it. They say it, all is well now and all will be well. Todo es bien y será bien. All is well now, and all will be well. But you see, that doesn't just happen. It's not just one of those things that comes along, but the favorite topic of literature, and so much that we read and much that we hear, is preparation for tomorrow. Uh, we have just recently passed through those times of preparing for storms, and uh, we don't know when those storms may come our way again, and tornadoes have uh, come through our area, plummeted our our uh, landscape, and left our houses and homes and businesses devastated and destroyed. We prepare for some of those kind of things. There are the announcements on the television and the warnings and the uh, taking uh, of all the precautions necessary for doing that. That's the preparation for an event in time that may have some changing events and forces on our own lives. But there's more to it than that. It seems to me that something much more important goes on in our life's preparation. For we have all of these years and all of this time and all of the advantages of our joys and our friends and our education and all the forces that impinge upon our lives that could change and alter us for that future, when finally we cross that imperceptible barrier that separates that life from this one, and we're ushered into his presence. And we make those kind of preparations knowing that something is going to happen someday. We may not live forever. Young people, you plan on it, don't you? You're indestructible. Nothing can happen to you, but it does. And if you live out in the God's yet unborn calendar the days that are allotted to you and to me, the time will certainly come when we too will close our eyes and the solemn moments of silence come again and our ears hear no more. We see not again the visions of our day and we pass into the beyond. The preparation for it. Now notice the scripture that I read a moment ago. And it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the beginning of it, you see. Those that you have quickened, it said. That he has quickened by his presence and by his power. Changing and altered. You hath he quickened. You hath he made alive. This, uh, this word, hath quickened, is really in... Uh, a word that uh, is translated elsewhere as made alive. So that really what happens here is that coming back from the dead. You see, we are talking not so much 
in this moment at least about that projected time when we will end out what we know as life. But the scripture tells us here as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus that you are already dead. Already dead. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. The verse you see is one of having a projected kind of of idea and concept. Paul picks it up again uh, with some vibrancy in the fifth verse as well. This is one of those kind of things that is that in the Greek we call the accusative. It is the forward movement. The item is our idea is is set here and 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 then it is simply left dormant for a while to sort of simmer on the cook stove of mon, one's mind and then is returned to our active thinking a little later. And it comes in the fifth verse as well. And we'll get to that in a moment as we look at God's Word. But you hath he quickened. You see, here is the, the introduction to the, to the subject to be discussed. That we have already died. That we are dead as we are now. It is that of already being dead. The former condition that is related here uh, then projected to our thinking is that we need in these moments, as he talks to the Ephesians, we need to consider who we are now and our condition at our present time. In our movement of thought and how we do the conjecture of life and how we deal with problem solving comes first by setting the first foundation of the process, the reality, reality. We can play games, we can color over, we can camouflage, but reality must begin our thinking. In the area of psychology and counseling, which we do so very much, and we have done some extensive work in that area, especially in social psychology because I have a vast interest in that. We come, the first pillar that must be mounted is that of reality. So that we don't play games with where we are. Don't try to be elusive and go around it. It's there. And Paul talks about that to the Ephesian church and he says, and you who hath he quickened who are dead, who were dead, and those among you who have not made those decisions continue to be dead in sins and trespasses. Where in times past you walked according to the course of the world, the way that others at all do. Obviously, this is not one that is savored by the general population. We don't like to be told that we're sinners. We don't like to be told that what we do is wrong and that we know better. We do not like to be told that we need to change the way we act and the way we talk and the way we do things. We don't like that. Of all the Christian doctrines, there is one that is least accepted by the general population. The Barna uh, tells us in his research that over and over, his research has revealed that the least accepted of all Christian doctrines is that of absolute sinfulness. Total depravity, if we want to go back. 
uh, to those early scholars. The least accepted. None of us want to do that. But Paul writes to the Ephesian church and tells them, this is the reality that we once were dead. You hath he quickened who were dead, those he hath made alive. And it changes the whole discussion when you come to grips with one's reality of his self, who I am, what I'm about, and what I'm doing, and how that affects my actions, my words, my vision, and my planning for the future. Let me repeat that. Of all the things we do, nothing impinges upon us with quite the forcefulness as that of reality, of knowing that what we do determines our future. So Paul talks about that. Wherein in times past you walked according to ways that were acceptable in your society. That's the old phrase that every parent hears, but daddy, everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. And they are. Well, almost everybody. Except, except those that have been quickened or made alive. So there is that alteration, that changing of one's whole life and, and vision. The outlook of who I am. And it paints the picture again of what we are doing in preparation for our tomorrows. Already dead. You see, man cannot deal positively with his condition until he comes to grips with who he is. And we finally come to that moment in life when the convicting power of the Holy Spirit comes intruding into our world, pushing aside the plunder of our time as we have grappled with materialism and the things that we want, pushing that all to the side. And we say, I am dead. I am lost. No easy way around that. In times past, you did what was expected. You were a part of the society you participated in the activities of your time. And it doesn't change at all. What do you see? It seems like it's the right thing to do. It looks like it's the right thing to do. After all, everybody else is doing it. In the Old Testament, there was that that scripture which says there's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The word seemeth there in the Hebrew is a word that we get our word mirage from. That simmering heat of the western deserts that leave those vast dry lakes appearing as if they're filled with cool water. Cool water. I grew up in the West, and I know what that's like. To see out there the, the heat 
change the, the vision waves so that it, you see the trees, you see the water, but it's not there. It seemeth right. It seemeth. The Hebrew word is one from which they get, we get the word mirage. It just looks like that. One hot day this summer, I was working outside in the yard and, and uh, perspiring. Uh, well, I do but more than that. I persweat. But anyway, uh, I was wringing wet all over, and I thought to myself, I need something to drink, something cool. I went inside, and sure enough, the princess had prepared, as she always does, more than I can ever eat or drink. And uh, there was inside a large pitcher of lovely, beautiful red Kool-Aid. Cold. Bright red. I poured me a large glass of it and chugged down about half of that before I took a breath. And then I realized that was the sweetest stuff I'd ever put in my mouth. It took the roof of my mouth right off. <clears throat> But I drank it anyway. Too sweet, but I drank it anyway. I then saw a dot somewhere, and I said, What on earth did you do to that Kool-Aid? You got it so sweet I can't hardly drink it. She said, Russell, that's not Kool-Aid. That's for the hummingbirds. <laughs> Well, I hope they like it. <laughs> but it, it looked like Kool-Aid. It seemed like it was Kool-Aid. It ought to have been Kool-Aid, too. <laughs> There's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. It seemed right. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that because we are who we are and we live where we live and we have this address and we drive this kind of a car or, or we have that kind of a job, whatever it is, we are above all of the realities of the world around us and we can just fantasize the perfect and implement perfection. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You see, lifestyle that we have today seems to fit in, but the Scripture tells us that there is a way that seems right, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It's lethal, the way we live. Lethal. And with that comes the reality of making those kind of changes that are demanded of every one of us by the Scripture. It's beyond just saying, well, I'm uncomfortable about it, but there comes that sort of intruding thought. And God's Spirit continues to talk to us, continues to intrude into our thinking continues to make us uncomfortable 
as we evaluate reality continues to keep us awake like a warm summer night. That's called conviction. Conviction. I remember when it happened to me as a young lad. There came to our small mining town in southern New Mexico a, a, a preacher that came to preach and they put up a tent down on the ballpark. And we lived in a company house and in a company town and everything was owned by the company. Just like a mill town except it was a mining town. Company store, company hospital, all of that. And they had a ballpark owned by the company, of course, and they put the tent up there and that little Baptist church that had been sponsored by the Home Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they sent a young pastor there just out of seminary at Fort Worth. His name was S.S. Perry. And S.S. Perry, over a period of time, took an affection to a young little boy that wore boob-lib overalls and whose eyes didn't quite focus, and over that period of time, my Lord used S.S. Perry to make me uncomfortable with reality. Is there not something somehow that we need to come to grips with in this pattern? It is that controversial kind of thing that not everyone wants to accept and not everyone wants to go along that same road. But you see, there is a way that seemeth right in the man, but there is an end to it that is deadly. Reality. Let me read some of this again. For it is in this world and among whom we had our conversations in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The Greek says, even like all. Just like all. But now, now the intrusion. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love, wherein he loved us. Now, the fifth verse. Remember we talked about that Greek accusative and projecting it to the future. Here it is in the fifth verse. And even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. For by grace are we saved. I would be unfair to the scripture if I did not bring this to you today that it is a long, far jump from verse 1 to verse 5. There was a pilgrimage in there, not just coming to grips with reality and knowing that it's there, but also moving beyond that to that second pillar about what we do and how we take action. So one seeks out a way to deal with the impasse. Once one comes to the reality of his situation and, and the conditions through which they're passing, 
or in which they're living, then the second pillar is, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? It's a long ways from verse 1 to verse 5. Things take place in there. Oh, I'm aware that sometimes conviction comes and almost as quickly on its very heels follows that decisive kind of action that says, yes, I accept him as Savior and Lord, and one commits their life to him. That's really a rarity. There's a long simmering time, a long time. For some, it goes on for years and years. Among our seniors at Pitts Baptist Church, where I serve, we have a large group. We have 170-something enrolled in our senior programs, and a very active church, a very big church. Uh, I had a big church one time, and we went to Bavard. You folks brought me here from there, of course, a big First Baptist Church. Now, that first is spelled F-U-S-S, incidentally, in case you're wondering. But I was pastor of a large church. It uh, didn't take me too long, however, to get it down to a manageable size. I, I w- <laughs> but in that, that group of seniors uh, out of that 170 that are enrolled, and there are more that we can't get, get them enrolled, but uh, out of that group there was one who, through the years, he and his wife have attended church Uh, rather sporadically, uh, his wife much more faithfully than he. But he never made a decision for Christ. Uh, His name was Duke. He's a little short fella, about that tall and about that wide. And uh, he's got hair on his head, but it's way down on his ears level now. And He's one of our seniors. But he heard the message over and over through the years, and I had an opportunity to talk to him on occasion, and and he he was just sitting and waiting, sort of. Not ready for a decision, he would say to me. And then one day, when our pastor gave the invitation, Duke stepped out. It took a long time for Duke. Sometimes, as I say, these things happen almost instantaneously, but not very often. There's a simmering, heating, boiling, finally, experience. It takes a long time. But eventually, of course, we come to that moment in life, in that second pillar of action in which we decide to do something about it. And we move on to that third as well. Now we do it. And the change, you see, is, is so changing and so altering and so renovating of spirit and thought and mind that we appear to be different people, not as we once were, but changed and altered. Even when we were dead in sin, he hath quickened us. He has enlivened us, given us breath. The Hebrew word that is that, and they breathe into the breath of life in the creation story, that's nephesh, breathe into them the breath of life. It is the same word, incidentally, that is used for a child that first is at first born and takes its first breath. That's the nephesh. And you hath he quickened who were dead in sins and hath quickened us, given us life, given us breath. 
together in Christ Jesus. So you see, it comes about by that action that we take that is a positive one. It's not saying, well, I'll just go along. Certainly things will work out. I've always been fairly successful. This too will work out in time. But finally, we come to that third pillar of man's experience of living, and that is he takes some sort of action. Here it is. Here it is. Let me turn to the fourth verse, the first chapter of that same letter that Paul writes to the, uh, to the Ephesian church. The 23rd verse. And they renewed in spirit and be renewed in spirit and in mind that you may put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, put in away line, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be not angry and sin not, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands a thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no man corrupt communication, and let it not proceed from your mouth, but that which is good and use of edifying. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you, and all malice. Now here it is. Here it is. Be kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Well, that's, uh, that really ushers us into uh, the real difficult part of all of this, following that decision to follow Christ and the alteration and changing of one's life and lifestyle and attitudes and outlook and speech and all of that. We get into the real labor of this, trying to be good. It's tough. Redeemed people have, a, have an inside on that because he has changed us and made us new. He hath quickened us, given us life, a newness. Well, it doesn't work perfectly, of course. I found out through the years that cantankerous sinners, when they become Christians and get in the church, are just cantankerous church members. You know that's true. Hard to get along folks in the mill uh, and an unsaved person there joins the church. Hard to get along in the church. Takes a long time. You see that scripture that we have in there tells us about that process. Now let me tell you this, that salvation is instantaneous. But conversion takes a lifetime. And the Lord chisels on the corners of our being to make us smooth. It takes him as long as we live. He's still working on Russell Willis. In fact, as I look myself over, there's a whole lot of things he needs to work on. I'm not where I would like to be in so many things, and, and I'm not where I would want to be in, in my attitude sometimes, less than Christian. But you see, the lifestyle is a part of what we call fruits. 
<laughs> you knew I'd get to that sooner or later. Well, we are fruit inspectors. Someone said we're not supposed to. Yes, we are. And by their fruits, you'll know them. So it changes and alters. Years ago, in 1961, I believe, a church not knowing any better asked me to be their pastor about in eastern North Carolina, in Elizabeth City, out in the country, out in a little high area of land uh, in the dismal swamps, eastern North Carolina, Elizabeth City. A church that uh, had begun in 1808, been there a long, long time. There were two churches there. The Methodist Church, it, was, it came along a few years later. And, uh, but those two churches uh, dominated the whole religious scene there in Newland, a little island of high land about eight or nine miles long and about three miles wide out in the Dismal Swamp, very rich land. And uh, I was pastor of that little church. Well, it wasn't all that little, a pretty good-sized church, close to 175 to 200 in Sunday school, and that was good for a rural church in those days and still is. But over the years, uh, that church had, uh, among other things, had come to, to love its history. Churches do that sometimes. They, the legacy of who they were becomes important to them, so much so that it gets in the way of doing ministries. Well, I won't get too much on that here, but uh, down at Ramoth Gilead, that was the name of the church there. That was very true. There was one family, Miss Birdie. She had played the piano 30-something years now, and... Uh, when I went there as pastor, she was in her last months of living, and she had advanced diseases that were taking her lives. Her husband, Mr. Frank, had been a power in that church. Everyone loved Mr. Frank, and I did too. I learned to love him over the years. He, he lived beyond us a little while. And then the family, bless their heart, had given to that church years ago in memory of Miss Birdie's years of service they had given a clock with a pendulum that swung, and it was over on the pastor's right. It was there. Didn't always keep good time, as I remember when I was there, because of its age, or someone for, would forget to wind it. But it was there. Well, we wanted to do some renovation in the church, and, and we had dealt with that, and everything could be done except Miss Birdie's clock. Don't mess with Miss Birdie's clock. I didn't. Now, I'm not the smartest fellow in the world, but I'm smart enough not to know to tangle with old folks who have some legacy and history in, in their heart. And I left that clock alone. It was a rallying point for some discussion that was less than Christian sometimes, too. Well, they, like you folks, asked me back for homecoming not very long ago. I think, what, three years ago was it, something like that? So I went back, back to Ramoth Gilead. They had built a new building, had received some money out of, a, out of a, uh, a will of a man that had died and left them a good deal of money. They built a beautiful new building. They had torn down that old white building where you got inside, you zins there, you know, one of those white country churches. They had torn that down, built a beautiful new brick building, and it had all the nice things inside of it. And they asked me to come up and, and be a part of that service of homecoming, and I did. And I came up, and I got up to the pulpit, and then I looked over to my right. There was Miss Birdie's clock. <laughs> I 
some things we make too important. But it says here that we, as, as we come through the experience of faith, come to some changing in our lives. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So what's it all about, really? Well, let me tell you what it's all about. It's about making decisions that have an eternal dimension to them. It is about making those decisions when finally we know and understand that there is no evading the reality of who we are. You see, that place which has been prepared for us is for a prepared people. These are kingdom people, if you please. They have a pattern of action. You know them when you hear them. You can almost hear the music of their heart. There's something special about those redeemed. And the demand is made upon all of us, but you have to begin it somewhere. And you begin it first by snowing and saying, I'm undone. I'm lost. And like Isaiah, who writes in the, his memoirs in the 53rd division of his writings, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Coming to grips with who we are and what we are and where we are. So we move to that, that decision moment. You hath he quickened. So that beyond this veil of tears and this experience of living, that place prepared for those that he loves can be occupied by those who live now. It's across the threshold of decision. We come to grips with it, and over a period of time, for some, it's very quick, but for most of us, it's a long one. But finally, there comes a time like in Duke's life when decisions need to be made. What about those folks that make it? Let me read that. No, there's a portion of Scripture that just all but jumps out if I can go to it this morning. And it is in that uh, section of, of the Scripture that says that these are the people of God. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor unto it. And the gates of it shall not shut at all by day. For there is no night there. No night there. Who are these? In the seventh division of Revelation, there is that explanation of who they are. The question is asked in the seventh chapter, Who are these? And the reply comes back, These are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are they who made decision. These are they who acted on reality. 
These are they who have come to grips with who they are and where they are and where they're going. How important is that to all of us to understand that God in His grace calls us to decision. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. It is not a place that we simply will go to because our time expires, but rather we will go there because of His love for us. And we need to understand that when God calls us, and He will in time, that those of us who have made preparation will be among those whose robes are made white and washed in the blood of the Lamb. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a jurist and also of note and served on the United States Supreme Court, among other things, was one of the leading poets of his day. And he wrote the chambered nautilus. Build thee more stately mansions, O my soul, where the swift seasons roll. Get thee to heaven with a goal more vast until... Thy links are free of a life in a restless sea. Jonathan Oatman did it even better, I believe. Jonathan Oatman wrote the hymn. You remember it? It goes, My heart has no desire to stay. Where doubts arise and fears dismay, For faith hath caught the joyful sound. The sound of saints on higher ground. From time to time, uh, very often, in fact, over the years I have been asked and have done voiceovers by the dozens and maybe hundreds, and I do it for churches still. We uh, do a lot of that for their cantatas and their musicals and so on, and they we used to put it on a, on a tape. Now they put it on a CD. But I remember I was asked to do that at, at one for a church, for the, one of our larger churches in the association. And I came to this poem. Get thee to heaven with a goal more vast until your links are free of the life on a restless sea. But Johnson Oatman puts it differently. Now his meter is not quite so sublime or his measure quite so stately. But he says it with a heart's conviction. The saints, we hear the sound of saints on higher ground. A prepared place for prepared people. Now we come now to the time of invitation. We ask that you be prayerful during these times. Our minister comes to stand before us during this time. There are those with whom the Spirit has been speaking. And in the plotting of the moments as they have passed, you too have struggled with a decision. I don't know who you are, but God does. I do not know the struggles through which you have passed, but God does. I do not know the heartache and the hurt that you feel, 
but God does. And we invite you to make decision now as we stand together.